Father, we sing carols that remind us of the, of the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of your Son's incarnate arrival and the joy that it brings to all men as a result of the salvation it made possible. Father, we sing these things, we enjoy this time of year for, for the traditions and the, the many ways we have uh, practiced Christmas in our own families and in our, in our community. And Father, that's, that's to be expected. We want to remember Christ's coming and the joy and the importance of it. But Father, I am also mindful every year of the way Christmas has uh, evolved, if you will, and the way the culture has taken it, and in some cases tried to take it away from where it began. And Father, I ask that as we bow our heads, as we appeal to you this morning in prayer, as we prepare to study your word, uh, on this week, that I uh, ask, Father, you would continue to encourage each of us in some way to be a witness, a gentle witness, someone who, in love and in patience, can explain to others the true meaning of Christmas and to live it out, Father, not simply in words and in music, but in, in the very lives we lead, Father, that we would be someone who reflects uh, what you did on the, uh, in bringing the Lord into the world in that, in that quiet way. Uh, someone, Father, who is not taken to the public eye as Jesus was born out of the public eye. And to be people, Father, who are humble as Jesus was in his beginning. And uh, that we are mindful that we've been brought on earth for a purpose as, as he and his parents were from the very beginning. All of these elements of Christmas that are overlooked, Father, I pray that we would put them front and center this week. And Lord, as we come together to study... Let our time in your word be purposeful as well. Time spent so that we'd be better, not only at knowing you and and following you, but speaking of you to other people. So inform us, Father, with words that we can use to speak to others about, about your Son, about his power in our life, about the salvation he brought, about the change he has done in us. These things, Father, become an opportunity to testify. We thank you for the chance to do so. We thank you, Father, for the preparation that we may do it well. Let our, let our ears and our hearts be open this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you're ready for the final judge in the study we have of judges this morning because we begin now in the study of Samson. And if you're looking at your Bible and you're noticing the chapter count in this book, you may already be asking yourself, well, how can we have nine chapters left in the book and have already reached our final judge? Well, the answer is that the final story of of judges, the story of Samson, does not require the nine chapters we have left in the book. Uh, In fact, his story only takes up four chapters, more or less. And that's still significant, obviously. It's the longest story of of any of the judges. But it's not the rest of the book. There are still chapters after that. And the book actually ends with an account of two different episodes that occur in the tribe of Dan. In fact, you could say the entire rest of the book of Judges, including the story of Samson, is a study of the Danites of the tribe of Dan. Because Samson is from the tribe of Dan as well. So the story of the Danite Samson and the story of the tribe itself will end up being the rest of the book of Judges, and together it's really a case study in the apostasy of Israel overall. And for us it's going to be a reminder that God is always at work through ordinary people to give us opportunities to serve Him. And our response to those opportunities will determine whether or not we make the most of them. And that's really the story of Samson, a man with a lot of opportunity who didn't always make the most of it. But first, let's meet this new judge, the the next man in line. We begin in chapter 13, verse 1. 
Reading, it says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. I want to pause with only one verse this morning before we go further, because we need to understand some things that are changing in the pattern that we've studied so often now in the book of Judges. If you go back a chapter where we were last week, at the end of chapter 12, you remember we witnessed a series of minor judges coming along in quick succession. And as we studied them, we noticed they were not very notable. There was nothing much said about them. It would seem as though they didn't accomplish much. And in fact, there were some indications that they were prone to making many of the same mistakes as past judges have made. They were concerned about themselves, it would seem, with building big families, acquiring wealth. And it would then seem that they were ruling like monarchs, much in the way we saw others do in the past, rather than serving the Lord, rather than serving the Lord's people. Meanwhile, we notice that the people of Israel are adrift again. And as has happened so often in this time of Judges, they've run back into the culture that surrounds them and gone back to the mistakes of that culture. In verse 1 we see here the telltale phrase that we've come to know so well in this book, that is evil being done by Israel. Israel doing evil in the Lord's sight because they would do what was right in their own eyes, as the phrase has gone. And we remember this is a marker. This is the marker. Doing evil is a euphemism in the book of Judges for idolatry specifically. So they're worshiping pagan gods again. And this puts them into that cycle, the, the cycle that I've often described as a wheel. You know, they, they start at the top, as it were, making this mistake again. God will punish them. He'll put them into a period of trial. And then they'll have to repent. He'll pull them out of it through a judge and then restore them. And then here we go again. And so it seems to be starting. Each time we see Israel return to the behavior of idolatry, we've taken time to note it, haven't we? We've stopped along the path and said, ah, here's the marker again. And I think sometimes we wonder how people could return so quickly into this pattern after seeing the Lord grant them some rescue from past mistakes. It's just amazing that the pattern keeps going. There's been other times we've noticed that they didn't learn from their ancestors, right? We've noticed different aspects of this pattern each time we've hit it. This time, I think we need to recognize the reality of something that we haven't mentioned yet. The reality that spiritual warfare never stops. There's never a break in the war. The enemy, in other words, never tires. He never stops working to corrupt God's people. He never takes a time out. He never stops trying. Now, the Lord, by His grace, may push Satan and his forces aside from time to time, but inevitably, the enemy comes back again. He is tireless because he exists now for one purpose in God's economy, to destroy the work of God and to substitute his own authority. He knows the fight that he has is for the death. And he knows he's under a death sentence, though he doesn't understand how it's going to play out. And he certainly doesn't know God's timing. But he does have a sense of urgency and purpose that is never going to change. And he doesn't need to invent new tricks. I like to say that Satan has only one trick. He just keeps using it over and over again. He just dusts off the same idols and trots them out again. He introduces them in a very similar way, under similar circumstances, using things like the allure of wealth, or the allure of sexual pleasure, in many cases, of the Israelites. He brings the people into a fall, again and again and again, using very similar tactics, very similar techniques, and he never stops trying. And that's why you see God's people falling back into this pattern 
over and over. And I am not, by the way, exonerating them from the blame that they deserve for their own sin, nor would we do that in our own cases. This is not the old phrase, the devil made me do it. This is not the point of my message whatsoever. My point is, you and I cannot rest, nor could the Israelites rest, on past successes. The only defense that you and I have from the enemy's schemes is to practice continually the disciplines of our faith consistently and fervently. Know your Bible. Seek the Lord's intercession in prayer. Spend time in worship in the body of Christ. Serve the people of God out of your love for the Lord. And as the Lord convicts, confess your sins to one another. And as the Spirit directs, walk in His counsel doing what you know will please Him. And then repeat consistently. If these practices aren't a part of our regular routine, then as that spiritual battle waxes and wanes, so will our steadfastness in the fight. When the enemy is going to go at you, so to speak, you're not prepared. And as we've all experienced in our life, and as we see in the cycle of Judges, there are times at which God, by His grace, will give us a respite to some degree. I like to think of Satan on a leash, because spiritually he is. The Lord's sovereignty never stops reigning. And there may be times in God's economy and His choice that He reigns Satan in, so to speak, at least to a degree, and, and His forces, and life starts to run fairly smoothly for a while. And then we get comfortable. And because we get comfortable, when the enemy eventually returns and turns up the heat again, we get knocked flat, like Israel has done here at the beginning of chapter 13 yet again. Like the old rope-a-dope maneuver in boxing. Muhammad Ali used to do this, or Sugar Ray Leonard used to do this. He would get the guy looking at one arm like this, and then when you were too busy working on this arm, he would hit you with the other one. I think Satan will do that in his own way. The Lord will allow the enemy a certain amount of freedom to do that, distracting us long enough with ease and success so that he can land the hard punch when we're not looking for it. And if the enemy weren't an adversary enough, we haven't talked at all about our flesh. You know, that's another mistake that Christian can make is to think that the enemy is only outside us, forgetting that the flesh that we inhabit has a very strong call of its own into sin. And when we're tempted by something, and if our flesh is undisciplined by our spirit, well then our flesh will get its way. And only by living in the spirit and denying flesh do we come away with, with any hope of surviving the, the battles that God will allow coming into our life. And friends, let's just point out the obvious. Even when you do practice the disciplines of your walk, and you do it consistently and earnestly and so on, you're still not going to be perfect. There's still going to be days you fall behind. But if you are equipped for the battle using the disciplines I just listed a moment ago, over time you win more than you lose. And increasingly you'll win more than you did before. Because you've been prepared by the Lord for that fight. First to fight the discipline of the flesh. Secondly to fight the enemy and his attacks and to keep persevering in confidence, hope and in peace. There's a month of Sunday's worth of sermon potential in everything I just said. I ran through that very quickly. I'm making one point primarily. And that point is, if the enemy never quits battling us, and our flesh is an ever-present feature of our existence this side of heaven, then you cannot naively expect that you can take a casual interest in the disciplines of the faith and find success. There will be a judge's pattern of itself in your life somewhere along the way. You will find yourself succeeding for a while, falling into something you've always done in the past, waiting for the Lord to rescue you again, suffering through whatever that brings, and starting at the top again. To some extent, we can't avoid some cycle. 
because we won't be perfect before God gives us the new body. But that cycle does not have to own us. That cycle does not have to dominate our life. That cycle does not have to be without some improvement over time. The Israel of judges, the Israel of this time, their chief sin was they lived in the flesh without a knowledge or obedience to the word of God. And as a result, they were not equipped to contend with what the enemy in their own flesh was willing to do. And as a result, they were constantly susceptible to falling back into this cycle. If it's not for the sake of some strong judge holding them back from their own sin, they were hopeless. So, even as they have seen judges come and go, they have just waxed and waned with it. And now the problem is, as we saw at the end of chapter 12, the quality of their judges are slipping as well. So that now, even when a judge is available as God appoints, the influence is limited in scope and in time. And in short order, the people have now returned to their ways. So, here you see the beginning of chapter 13. People falling now, the nation of Israel falling back into the cycle, but even deeper than they have in the past. So yes, the Lord will respond in discipline, but... In light of the serious decline in the nation, the Lord now has to act in an even more dramatic way than he has in the past series of judges. He's going to raise up a man with unique powers to address this growing independence. We saw last week how the tribes are starting to grow so independent that even their dialect is starting to to specialize. So we need a man who can unify these people. But first the Lord needs to bring them to the point that they're looking for help, or so we would expect. This is the second stage in the cycle, right? First stage is sin. Second stage is they go under an oppressor so that God can bring them to a point of repentance. Here we read, they've gone under the oppression of the Philistines. Now the Philistines were a warring people. By nature, they were very prone to warfare. They're Greek. They came from Greek islands originally. They traveled from there across the Mediterranean and settled in the coastal plains, the western coastal plains of Israel. They were Hellenistic, which is another way of saying they were of Greek origins. They were tall relative to Israelites. They were very intensely religious in their pagan religion. And they were highly effective against the nation of Israel because they had five city-states that were all closely aligned politically. And they operated with a lot of political strength because of their alliance. And lastly, they had mastered the smelting of iron. They made iron tools, particularly iron implements for war, and the Jews did not know how to smelt iron at this stage of history. So the Jews were at a distinct disadvantage to the Philistines during war. And now the Lord had brought these people up against the nation to pressure them into repentance because of their idol worship. One other facet, in a strange ironic twist, the nation of Israel was attracted to Philistine culture. The Jews traded with them. The Jews liked their iron tools, and so they came and bought iron tools. And then iron tools get dull, and you have to sharpen them. And they didn't have any means of doing that, so they had to go back to the Philistines to pay to have their tools sharpened. Eventually, they adopted Philistine pagan gods and Philistine Greek culture. And even though the Philistines warred with them at times, they had this love-hate relationship with the Philistines. As they like to say, it was complicated. Now, based on the pattern of judges, what do you expect to see happen at this moment? They've sinned. They've had 40 years of some manner of oppression. What should be the next thing that happens? Well, the next thing that should happen is we should see somewhere in the text the nation crying out to the Lord for relief, right? That's the next step in the pattern. But this time, friends, the pattern is different. The Lord's going to raise up a judge 
But that judge will not come as a result of Israel crying out for their help. Secondly, the next thing you'll notice is, though the judge is raised up, a man with great power, he will not defeat the enemy, not entirely, which again is a change from the previous pattern. He'll have some victory, but he will eventually die fighting these Philistines, and it it will then require Samuel, who is a contemporary judge with Samson, and later David, to eventually win decisive battles over the Philistines. And in the meantime, the Philistines will continue to be a threat in this time. In fact, you don't actually see the Philistine culture disappear altogether until Nebuchadnezzar takes them away when he comes for Israel. So friends, this is a different cycle. The pattern is different. The people are not demonstrating repentance, and the Lord is not solving the problem altogether. You notice it says they're in oppression for 40 years. 40, as you know already, is a number for testing. It would seem as though the Lord has tested them, tested their willingness to succumb to the culture of the Philistines and to the gods of the Philistines, and yet they have failed to seek the Lord or call out for Him even after the 40 years of testing. So what do you do if you are a Lord who is faithful to His covenant, but He's in covenant with a people who are unfaithful to Him? Well, you remain faithful. John Davis remarked this. He says, What does the Lord do when He has a people who refuse to forsake Baal and have no desire to forsake Philistia, a people grown so used to bondage that they don't even have a sense to call out for relief. At least here, the very God who judges them begins to work their deliverance anyway. That is grace. Grace greater than all our sin, than all our stupidity, than all our density. So in grace, the Lord begins to bring in a unique deliverer here, one who can address the extreme sin and the growing independence of the tribes. And now we begin the story of Samson. And you'll notice, I'm sure, how familiar this story sounds. Verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and born no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now I said this story would sound familiar, not in all respects, certainly, but in the, in the big details of it, you see something you've seen before, right? His arrival, Samson's arrival, is almost exactly the same as Isaac, Jacob, Samuel, John the Baptist, and even to some degree, Christ himself, in some aspects of it. You begin, for example, with Samson's mother being barren. This is a storyline God seems to like quite often. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, they all shared that same beginning when they birthed their son. And like those same women, the birth actually begins with an announcement, with a messenger showing up to say that it's coming. Now, we looked at this in Genesis. I know we've talked about it at other times. God is commonly seen doing this in special moments. He withholds the child for a time 
so that when it arrives, the impact is that much greater for the family and for the world. We know there's something special planned because God didn't let the child come until everything was prepared. And in some cases, he waits so long that the woman had no concept of even being able to give birth anymore. So that the whole thing is understood to be miraculous and therefore purposeful. Purposeful. In this case, it's the angel of the Lord who appears and says, you're going to have a son. And we know who the angel of the Lord is, right? We've studied this as well. This is always the second person of the Godhead. Christ himself, before he took on flesh, coming in the form of something, a man, a burning bush in the case of Moses. In all the places you see it mentioned, he, he comes as a theophany, the word is, the physical appearing of God's Shekinah glory. So here you have the angel of the Lord. And any time the second person of the Godhead, the creator himself, takes time to announce your birth in advance, you can be sure you are a very important part of God's plan. In fact, and this is interesting, there is only one other time in all the Bible when the angel of the Lord personally announces a birth in advance. Anybody want to guess which one that is? It's Isaac. Isaac, the one born to Abraham. So only Isaac and Samson are announced in advance by Christ himself. So certainly we should take a close look at Samson's life. Don't you agree? So the Lord tells the woman that though she is barren, the Lord's going to deliver a son. And this child is going to be marked out from birth for the Lord. A similar word was given to Samuel's mother, Hannah. And remember, Samuel and Samson are contemporaries. They're born only about five years apart or so. So at a very similar time in history, God is raising up these two men. But in this case, the Lord adds that this child is going to live his entire life under a Nazarite vow. Now, a Nazarite vow was a form of consecrated living that God outlined in the law for Israel. And the rules for Nazarite living focus principally on three requirements when you boil it down. You get these out of Numbers chapter 6. First, the person could not consume anything that came from a grapevine. So wine, obviously, or eating grapes even. You could not do that. Secondly, the person could not cut their hair. So the hair had to grow to its full length naturally for as long as they were under the vow. Finally, they could not come into contact with a dead body. Now, what's the reason for these rules? Why do we have a Nazarite vow in the first place? Well, first, the word Nazarite just means to be kept separate, to be separated out. That's what consecrated means. It means set apart for holy purpose. So if I'm going to consecrate or separate myself, then I need to stand out, right? By definition, if I'm trying to separate myself from people, I need to stand out. I need to look different. I need to act different. So the Nazarite vows was intended to keep a person distinct from the rest of Israel, a group of people who by their own nature were distinct from the rest of the world. So it's sort of distinction from distinction. Let's look at each one briefly. Not cutting one's hair, for example. Well, that actually made you stand out as a man. This is the one way, by the way, we know that Jesus did not wear his hair long, though he's often portrayed that way in the paintings and the movies, along with the blue eyes and the British accent. There's something about the hippie mindset that says Jesus had to have the long hair. That's what made him cool. But men kept their hair short, and you can see that reflected in Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, right? He said it would be shameful for men if their hair were long. And conversely, in their culture, it was shameful for a woman to wear her hair extremely short. It is not natural for anyone in that age to wear their hair long. Men had very close cropped hair. In fact, look at the way the emperors of Rome are portrayed in the busts that remain of them carved in marble. They all have very short, very contemporary for us, very contemporary short hair. 
So wearing your hair long was an aberration from the culture, and it led to the ability of a Nazarite to stand out. If you walked around with hair down to your shoulders, everyone knew there was a Nazarite. That's the whole point. Likewise, abstaining from wine or grapes in general would have been at odds with the culture. Everyone drank wine. Wine was the water of the day. Now, it was often diluted with water so that it could go further and so that its intoxicating effects would be mitigated to some extent. But people drank wine as the normal drink. One of the reasons people believe that's true is because it was naturally antiseptic. In other words, it didn't have the potential to grow pathogens because the alcohol killed them, so it didn't go bad like water did. Water could kill you. Wine was safe, generally speaking. So if you were someone who avoided drinking anything of grapes, you were acting very differently at key moments in the culture, at a meal, at a festival, at a religious observance. If you're the only one not drinking wine, you stand out in a huge way. Finally, in the law, if you touched a dead body, you were prohibited from going to the temple for worship for a whole week. And as a result, it cut fellowship, as it were, human fellowship with the Lord, in the sense that you could no longer go and participate in worship. And so to avoid touching a dead body or touching anything that's unclean meant you remained in fellowship continually. You never broke fellowship with the Lord in that sense. So these rules all emphasize a close walk with the Lord not being interrupted. Even in the sense of drinking wine, for example, too much wine puts you under the influence of the alcohol instead of under the influence of the spirit. So that's something you wanted to avoid. And, and the similarly, not wanting to come in contact with a dead body. You wanted to be consecrated, set apart for the Lord, separate from the people. Such would be the call on Samson's life, we're told. Even before he was born. And the Lord said to the mom... I want you to begin observing some of these same restrictions upon yourself even before the baby is born. Now notice which one he left out. He says, you're not to drink anything of the fruit of the vine. And what does he say? You're not to go in consuming anything that could make you unclean. But the third one he never mentions. What's the third one? Cutting the hair. He never tells the mom, by the way, stop cutting your hair. Why? Because women didn't cut their hair. So she was already going to be consistent in that respect. Now, it is not normally the case that a mother would institute these actions in preparation for her child to take the vow. Because normally the individual themselves takes the vow. But in this case, the Lord requires this additional step for the mother. I think the Lord gave these instructions to the mother to emphasize the importance of Samson's consecration from the very beginning of his life. And to say nothing of the benefits of a child when the mother doesn't drink in pregnancy, etc., etc. But that's not the point here. The point is the child's commitment to the vow would have to be learned. So the parents have to train him from the very beginning that this is who you were brought up to be by the Lord's command. And if the parents are going to train the child, the parents have to believe it themselves. It has to be internalized. So the mom is to internalize the truth of this message from the very moment she hears it, before the birth of the son, and then, of course, into the rest of his life. John the Baptist, we're told, was raised in a similar way by Elizabeth. The Lord is leaving a strong impression on this mother and father so that they will follow through. And then lastly, the Lord tells the family all of these things in advance so that they understand this child is going to be important. They say this child is going to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Notice it says begin, not complete, because we know it's going to require Samuel and David to eventually bring it to completion. But Samson is going to start it. Samson is the beginning. Now, the restrictions of the Nazarite vow are arbitrary 
in the sense that there is nothing inherently good about not cutting your hair or about not touching a dead body, etc., etc. You cannot say that if you do these things, somehow you are more holy than your neighbor. That was never the point, and it's certainly not the case today. They set you apart, and as such, they become a test of a person's willingness to serve the Lord. A person who accepted these restrictions did so as an act of devotion. They were making a personal sacrifice and they were showing their full obedience to the Lord. And as they went through daily life and they encountered the struggle that comes with saying no to things and avoiding other things, they were recommitting, as you might think of it, in the moment to put the Lord's will above their own. It's a constant reminder that I am working to serve the Lord. And friends, that's not a small thing. We all need reminders of some kind in our life that obedience is a priority and you can easily stray from that if you don't have something in your life that drives you back to that thought. And so although we may not make a vow and certainly none of us are under the law of of given to Israel so it's not an obligation or even a request on God's part for us. Nevertheless, do you have markers in your life? Something that you have set up for yourself that helps you stay on the straight and narrow as opposed to wandering off into oblivion? Sometimes you heard me talk about fences, which is a term we borrow from Judaism. The idea that I know that if I get into this situation or if I go close to that scenario, I'm likely to fall because those are the places I'm weak. So I set up a barrier. I stop myself from even getting close to those situations so that I don't have a chance of falling. You can think of that as something like what's going on with a Nazarite vow. We need to take advantage of whatever limits, rules, or other practices we can come up with so that we can set ourselves apart, but in the sense of set yourself apart from sin. You want to set yourself apart from disobedience. You want to set yourself apart from worldly thought, worldly living. Whatever you need to do to keep yourself from temptations or or just forgetfulness, make those vows, if you will, as well. The writer of Hebrews tells the church that if there is anything that holds us back from running at full speed in obedience to the Lord, then we should cast it aside. Hebrews 12.1, he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And one last thought. The parental issue is one worth thinking about for a moment. I know not all of us still have kids in the home. Perhaps some of us have moved on to grandkids, which is just as relevant. But parents in the Christian faith are expected to prepare the hearts of their children from an early age to be set apart for the Lord. We train them up, the scriptures say, in the way that they should go spiritually and in the way that they should live otherwise. And we do so in the hope that the Lord will bless our obedience with faith in their heart. No quid pro quo, no guarantees, we know that. But our obedience is still at stake. Regardless of the outcome in the child's life, we are still held accountable as Christian parents to be obedient to that command. It's not be obedient so that you can get your children to be faithful and then if they stop being faithful, well then I guess we didn't need to be obedient after all. No, no, your obedience is a test in and of itself. It doesn't matter what happens to them. Create patterns early in their lives that establish them as separate from the world and do so in that hope that the Lord by His grace will reward that obedience with faith in their heart. But do it because God's asked us to do it. Now, we're going to pause here at this point in our study of Samson. Because if you look a little further down the chapter, you're going to notice that as the husband and the, and the wife get these instructions, they begin to ask some questions because they're unclear on what they're to do next given how special 
their son is to be. And, and it was certainly in my plan this morning that we would just finish this chapter rapidly because there's an opportunity to, to take out the rest of it in the time we have. And then as I was studying it, I recognized that as you look through the rest of this chapter, there's a moment in which the angel of the Lord appears to answer their concerns. And when they inquire of the man's name, not knowing that they're speaking to the angel of the Lord, his response is Isaiah 9, 6. That is, he calls himself Wonderful, Mighty Counselor. And this is the Christmas story. So it may surprise you to know that the second half of this chapter is the perfect place to spend Christmas Eve. And I would love to stand up here and tell you that I planned this. I look down through the months of time we've spent in the book of Judges and I realize that if I took just enough weeks away, went at a certain pace, on Christmas Eve we'd show up at the end of chapter 13. But no, the Lord figured that out. So our annual celebration of the Lord's arrival as a child will end up being a great time to take a look at what this moment means for this family. And it's also an opportunity for us to take an inventory of our own life of obedience to the Lord as, as we look at a man who will be set apart for the glory of God as well. And so we're going to wait to do that. So as we leave here this morning, I want to ask you to consider as this story begins that as we look at what God's going to do in this man's life, we want to be preparing to guard ourselves against the deceit of sin, the traps of our flesh, the enemy's schemes, because what you'll see happen in this man's life is a man equipped in special ways at the end of his life begins to fall prey to these very traps. And as we've said many times in the book of Judges, this is a story that teaches us as much about how not to serve the Lord as it does about how to serve the Lord. Let's honor him with our gifts of sacrifice, putting his will above our own, and let's learn from those who went before us in great power who failed to do so, remembering that only by the Spirit will we do these things. And then lastly, let's teach our children to do exactly the same things. That's the best gift you can give them is a testimony of obedience to the Lord. Not perfection. I think if we teach our children that perfection is the standard, that's only going to lead to guilt and discouragement. But what we want to teach them is they should have a commitment to never allowing anything to come between them and fellowship with the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the chance to, uh, to begin a study like Samuel, or Samson, Father. And I know that if this man's life began with our Lord personally announcing it, then Clearly, Father, there's something here that we need to understand deeply. And I pray, Lord, you'd show us that over the course of the coming weeks. I pray that our study of Samson would be uh, one that teaches us not only of how we can serve you better, but also, Father, how not to. And, Father, as we look forward into the end of this week and the celebration of Christmas, prepare our hearts, Father. Prepare our hearts to, to know once more why this season is so important. And to have a boldness to share it with others in a time when so many have turned aside and and do not want to hear the truth of Christmas. Thank you, Father, that you've shined that light of truth in our hearts and that in this small church you continue to preach it. I pray, Father, we would be bold in sharing it. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.